strong voices. It's not just about one state, it's not just about one community, it's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we've got to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you live from the Calm Radio Studios here on Arundel Country in Central Australia and broadcasting to all nations through Vast Channel 911 and on 8 FM here in Alice Springs. We're also coming to you online at karma.com.au. Today is, of course, the start of the week. It's Monday, the 13th of May, 2019. I'm your host, Carl Dowling, and it's great to have your company for Strong Voices this morning. I'll be taking you all the way up until 12 o'clock. Well, on today's program, we're going to be hearing about uh, health professionals and organisations uh, will receive uh, receiving additional training and resources to help support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women who are looking to quit smoking during pregnancy. As we know, the health impacts uh, in regards to smoking when pregnant uh, can have that significant impact. So any of those additional support, we're going to be hearing about that uh, shortly on the program. Also this week, uh, more than 40 remote storytellers from across the country have converged in Alice Springs as part of a new festival hosted by uh, Indigenous Community Television, uh, ICTV. Today we're going to be hearing about ICTV's uh, inaugural Festival of Remote uh, Remote Australian Indigenous Moving Image or Frame. The uh, four-day event is uh, taking place from today the 13th up until the 16th of May. Also, an Aboriginal organisation says a $20 million contract with Rio Tinto to maintain a rail line will create uh, around 20 additional jobs for Aboriginal people. We're going to be hearing from Michael Woodley, the CEO of Indige Bandi Aboriginal Corporation, uh, who's going to be discussing that contract later this morning. And for our final story, the federal election is coming up this Saturday, May 18th. This year, we have seen a large number of uh, Indigenous candidates. And today, we're going to hear a report from The Wire asking the question of whether uh, this will actually impact policymaking into the future, you know, as we could potentially see uh, more First Nations views in the House of Representatives and in the Senate. We're also going to be hearing the very latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. Hi, my name's Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to Calm Radio, Strong Voices on 18. That's right. You're listening to Strong Voices here on Calm Radio Aiken FM. We're going to head into our first story now. As we reported in our news, uh, health professionals and organisations will receive additional training and resources to help support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women to quit smoking during pregnancy. Smoking during pregnancy has a major impact on the lifelong health of both the mother and child, including birth complications and low birth weight. Uh, helping Aboriginal mothers to quit smoking 
uh, early in pregnancy will help close the gap on Indigenous health. Uh, quit smoking expert Associate Professor Gillian uh, Gould from the University of Newcastle and the Hunter Medical Research Institute recently spoke with Karma's Paul Wiles. I'm a GP by trade and I've had a long-standing interest in helping people quit smoking and uh, way back in about 2005 when I was working up on the Mid-North Coast we were approached by a local Aboriginal medical service uh, to see if uh, we could uh, help do something more specific for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander smokers. So since then, I've been helping develop programs to help Aboriginal people quit smoking, really from grassroots level. And this is one of those programs. ISIS to quit. The new funding that's come from the Department of Health to fund a new phase of the Sister Quit program. So we've been developing Sister Quit for some years now. The pilot program was called I Can Quit in Pregnancy and then we changed the name to Sister Quit and we've got a trial going at the moment of Sister Quit in quite a number of services across Australia which is a bit more like a traditional, like half the services get the intervention, half just do what they normally do and we compare the two. But uh, this extra phase of money that's come from the Department of Health is to is to put those resources and training into more digital form so they can be self-paced online training and that will be able to be now disseminated to more services and including mainstream services um, as well as Aboriginal medical services and along with that we're going to be having a social media um, kind of program so that women out there do get the right messages about um, quitting smoking when they're pregnant. So um, it's very exciting, the phase of the project, and it means that we're able to really get to more women and reach more women out there and, and help more women quit smoking in pregnancy because it's still a very important thing that anyone can do if they're smoking is to try and quit smoking, you know, not only for themselves, but, you know, for the future of their babies. Despite all the advertising, I mean, the levels are still particularly high. Yes, and I think that is a combination of the addiction because like, people do very quickly. We know now people very quickly get addicted to cigarettes. So even having exposure to one or two cigarettes as a young person, the brain gets very quickly addicted it you know that's a chemical addiction and then if you sort of combine that with the disadvantages that aboriginal people have experienced it does make it much harder to get off smoking and quite often people just don't have the same access to services and medications uh, as the rest of the population you know some of these things can be quite expensive and you know you have to go to a doctor to get a prescription for example so i think it's a combination and what happens in pregnancy, that, that all heightens because the metabolism speeds up in pregnancy. So in actual fact that some pregnant women end up smoking more in pregnancy because of that faster metabolism. So it just makes it that much harder to perhaps get off the smokes in pregnancy. And we know that 
a lot of things are happening. You know, the time a young person becomes pregnant, they've got a lot on their mind, a lot of things are going on, a lot of changes to cope with. So um, health providers and doctors need specialised training to be able to help pregnant women quit smoking. Now, Gillian, working with the Aboriginal community, I'm sure from a very early stage you would have seen that there's quite a massive difference from dealing with people who, A, English isn't necessarily their first language, it might be their fourth language, and B, they have historically a very long connection to smoking. So when you put those two things together, providing the services, like you just said, it's a very different ball game. It is. We've been very mindful of that when we've developed our resources. So they're very much more visually constructed. You know, for example, we have a booklet for women, uh, which has a lot of small videos in it, you know, that people can use an app on their phone to look at the videos. We've taken account of making sure the language is readable. We haven't gone to the point at this point in time of translating into different Aboriginal languages. We haven't, haven't tried that out. But it would be a definite an aim for the future to be able to have that literature in in language. But we definitely have tried to account for diversity of different peoples, so that there's different role models in there um, that come from different areas of Australia, for example. Working remotely with the language barrier, very difficult for people to get their head around a what it's all about. And often medical language is very difficult to understand. The language that you use, you know, with the First Nations peoples has to be, at, uh, you know, at a very basic level so they can understand what you're saying. I totally agree. And, and what we've aimed for is grade five, I, I think, with our um, resources. but um, And also for the health professionals, we've aimed at a grade nine and ten. So basically, this new program is based on training the health provider. So it's trying to lift our game as health providers so we can do a better job and provide evidence-based care for Aboriginal pregnant women that's culturally competent and we our training is to guide the health provider in how to do that under the complex situation of smoking and pregnancy which you know has got some some different things happening in the body you know so that we need to take account of when a person's pregnant so we've tried to put that together in our package uh, for training our sister quit package we feel that until the health provider is providing that sort of care that's pitched at the right level it's going to be difficult for people to quit smoking because you know people do um, that's kind of one of the best places to go is go back to your service, go back to your either whether it's your, the midwife, the GP or the Aboriginal health worker, whoever's the person that's helping you through your pregnancy and have them be, as a trusted person, be able to give you the care you need when you're going on that journey. And we also found that a lot of people getting mixed messages. Some women were being told, oh, look, it's okay if you cut down. Women are still being told things like, well, it's far too stressful for the baby for you to quit smoking, which is, we know is not correct. So, you know, we're trying to get those messages all consistent and delivered to open up that conversation with women, uh, which is a two-way conversation, and to be able to provide resources to help people do that. 
So that's what the, what we're trying to do. There are aspirations there for having this in language, but we're not quite there yet. As with most um, health issues for the First Nations, uh, the community members themselves have to and must play a big part in reversing a lot of the negative side of the, the health issues. And again, I know this is very early days, but um, you've talked about uh, you know translating the program into language. Uh, caring for young pregnant women is a big part of being you know part of a community. So while it is early days, and obviously you do have a long way to go with this program, the actual involvement of of Aboriginal people as, as well as medical people. Look, I think there have been some great models of that in other countries. With say New Zealand, uh, they had an aunties program where Maori women in the community were trained in um, how to help pregnant mums quit smoking and they were able to dispense um, you know the nicotine gum and things like that out in the community without being medical people or Aboriginal health workers themselves so there have been some models of that in other countries and I think a similar thing um, in uh, Alaska they had a native sisters program you know so that that is that is something that could be potentially feasible um, that would certainly complement you know what the services are doing. Um, we're also trying to develop an app at the moment of, um, that can be something that you know an Aboriginal pregnant mum has in her hand. She's got um, you know a high, highly trusted source of information that she can access on an app. So we've got that in development at the moment. Um, so, you know, I think all of these things are needed and I think, you know, I agree with you, you need to come from a kind of lots of different angles here. We've got to yeah. get the whole thing kind of working together and we've got to get families involved, partners involved. You know, all of that is best from a community level. One final question, Gillian. What have you learned by working alongside Aboriginal people at a grassroots community level? What was your understanding and, and what, what have you been learning about the First Nations? I would say probably my key thing is the generosity of people. People are very open and generous and um, you know if people have that buy-in and uh, you know have ownership of what you you know what what we're trying to do I feel like you know then we can really work together that it you know you need like the right and the left hand need to work together so I, I think that that's what I've learned is is people are very generous and sometimes you know we make mistakes we're not perfect but you know people are very forgiving and you know everybody has the same vision you know for the for the best for the best you know to 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 better people's health better Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander health is like we can go forward together. On that note uh, Associate Professor Gillian Gould many thanks for joining us. Thank you. Yes, that was Karma's Paul speaking with quit smoking expert Associate Professor Gillian Gould. We're going to be hearing the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country shortly. You're listening to Strong Voices here on Calm Radio this morning. I'm very happy to welcome into the Calm Radio studios for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country, uh, Karma's Paul Wiles and Lorena Walker. Good morning to you both. Good morning, Carl. Good morning, Carl, and good morning, listeners. 
Well, Paul, we'll start with you. As we know, the, the federal elections right around the corner coming up this Sunday, the 18th of May. Uh, a, a lot's been happening across the country. We've seen a, a, you know, a range of different policy makers and different you know, candidates travelling around right across the country. Uh, we've seen some opinion pieces coming out. So what can you tell us about those? Well, um, yeah, writing in the um, Sydney Morning Herald, an opinion piece by uh, Nara Murray, um, the headline, A Modest Response to Australia's Most Disadvantaged Group. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, Nara says in this election campaign, the major parties have together pledged more than $100 billion in new spending commitments, but their policies uh, target at addressing the extreme disadvantages which are faced by many of Australia's uh, First Peoples appears to be small change. Uh, she says while Aboriginal leaders have gratefully acknowledged the commitment by the major parties, they are fairly modest when compared with the poverty, poor health and record levels of imprisonment of the First Peoples. And significantly, neither party has pledged to reverse the uh, savage cuts of uh, $534 million to Aboriginal programs that were made in the 2014 budget. So uh, while some of the uh, pledges may look good on paper, it's actually catch-up money, uh, money that was already there and that was taken out of uh, project uh, delivery. Uh, Nara says, uh, for the record, Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are among the most poverty-stricken Indigenous peoples in, in the world and the nation's most disadvantaged group. In terms of health and economic status, um, her people are doing far worse than other Indigenous peoples in countries with similar histories, such as New Zealand and the United States. While Aboriginal people live at least 10 years less than other Australians, infants die at twice the national rate, and the major parties don't seem to be responding to the recent alarming data showing that the gaps are still not on track. So, I mean, what we have seen um, in the lead-up to the election is lots of uh, pledges and promises from the major parties um, Labor saying they'll match the Liberals on this, and the Liberals come up with a new, a new uh, policy plan that they're putting money in, and then Labor matches that. But uh, what hasn't really come up in the conversation again uh, is the First Nations peoples, and uh, certainly not at the level. I mean, we know going back a number of years ago, uh, uh, racism and uh, uh, all of the other issues around migration um, did put some focus back onto the First Nations, but uh, this election uh, seems to have gone um, distinctly more on um, uh, the economy and uh, maintaining a strong economy and environmental issues have certainly come to the fore um, in, in the you know, last few months, So, uh, but not a huge focus on the First Nations. And just on that topic, we have seen an announcement recently from uh, the country uh, Liberals, uh, in particular from the uh, Senator Northern Territory Senator Nigel Scullion, the Federal Minister for Indigenous Affairs, uh, the CLP candidate for uh, Solomon, uh, Cathy uh, Ganley, and Senator Price as well, the candidate for Lingiari, recently announced uh, funding of over $850,000 for Indigenous language and arts projects. So they're looking to provide that uh, 
obviously additional support for, for languages and art centres. As we know, we've seen the, the push here in the Northern Territory to have the National Aboriginal Art Gallery. So still, you know, a very strong focus on, on sort of mm. art and things like that as well. Um, yeah, just uh, if I can just very quickly just go yep. back um, to um, Nara's story. Uh, she was saying that uh, the retiring Indigenous Affairs Minister Nigel Scullion has put health policy announcements on his website that are not specifically aimed at uh, First Nations peoples. He mentions the listing of a skin cancer drug on the PBS at a cost of $81.5 million, the rural health strategy, which includes $84.1 for the Royal Flying Doctor Service, $50 million national women's health strategy, um, Nara says this follows the coalition's lack of new Indigenous health measures in the budget. She's certainly getting stuck in. <laughs> well, uh, we're going to move on to our next story. On to you, Lorena. I understand uh, a story from Nacho. Yes, yeah, so the Coalition of uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Peak Bodies um, are meeting in Melbourne as we speak, uh, and they're discussing a new close the gap agreement uh, which will be the first time the coalition have come together since they formed the group last year to negotiate the historic partnership uh, agreement on closing the gap so 40 peak organizations from around the country are expected to attend and uh, from the words of um, nacho ceo pat turner the coalition uh, of peaks have been hard at work since the partnership agreement uh, was announced and yeah looking forward to discussing uh, what they want to achieve in the new closing the gap um, agreement so and those yeah. discussions definitely have been ongoing over a number of years we've spoken to you know pat we've spoken to uh you know the ceo of uh Amson as well john patterson yeah. about that engagement with Aboriginal people, as we saw, you know, 10 years from when the closing the gap targets were set, you know, not a lot of the actual mm. targets were achieved in some circumstances were actually going backwards. Obviously, something needed to change. And from a lot of these organisations' point of view, it was that input from the organisations, Aboriginal organisations and peak bodies across the country. And I know yeah. this was something that they were obviously, you know, fighting to have for quite some time. So it'd be quite yeah. interesting to here coming from some of these conversations you know if those voices are being heard and and you know what those targets uh, they're looking to achieve yeah especially in health i know last or uh, may, maybe a month ago or um a while back there was um sort of that that conversation within the social justice the aboriginal social justice network as well so hopefully um yeah we hear back some of the feedback from these organisations. And and on that topic, obviously, there have been, you know, calls to implement targets around specifically justice and housing as well. Uh, moving on to our, our next one, uh, youth detention, in fact. I understand um, a story in regards to that in the ACT. is It's not looking too great there, yeah? No. So in the ACT, um, this follows recent findings within six months uh, that Indigenous... Um, Youth uh, at a, a double the rate of population within the youth detention centres in the ACT, and yeah, this r report is was increased since two thousand and thirteen. So it has doubled, and yeah, just again, uh, youth justice and um, finding ways to, I suppose, get youth out of that cycle. 
Yeah. Obviously, youth diversionary yep. programs and things like that have been discussed over the years, obviously, yeah. here in the Territory. We've yeah, very much. And, uh, you know, there have been some great um, programs that have uh, delivered um, uh, amazing results in, uh, you know, country areas of New South Wales. Um, one or two programs there have, have shown that, uh, you know, it is possible to, with the right type of program to get people back onto uh, onto the straight and narrow so to say um, and not get caught up in you know wanting to go back to prison because they they feel that that's where they need to be uh, generally it would involve programs around um, in communities ensuring that young people do have some job prospects um, and ways to keep them uh, engage within the community uh, at, at a cultural and economic level. Yeah. Mm. Well, on that note, uh, Paul, Lorena, thank you both for joining us for the news from around the country. Thank you, Carl. Thank you. This is Patrick Johnson, and you're listening to Strong Voices. Be deadly and stay deadly. ICTV's inaugural Festival of Remote Australian Indigenous Moving Image, FRAME, is a four-day event taking place from the 13th to the 16th of May. The festival shares knowledge of more than 40 remote content creators through two nights of screenings as well as a range of content workshops. I recently spoke with Curtis Taylor, a filmmaker from the Kimberleys and a facilitator for FRAME. Here's that conversation now. Well, just first of all, Curtis... uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, who you are, you know, where you're from, you know, who's your mob. Tell, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, well, I'm a Maru person from the Western Desert area in uh, Western Australia, an artist and a filmmaker. But yeah, just artist in general. And in terms of, in particular, of filmmaking, how did you, how and why did you get involved in that space? What, what drew you to that? Uh, like a mistake, really. I just fell into it. Well, I just yeah, fell into it after you know, um, growing up with watching movies and yeah, I just wanted to tell my own story. You know, stories that you know that I really come from. You know, the experience that I had and you know other people like me had. You know, growing up in Timuria, or you know, being um, indigenous to. You know this continent, and I understand, Curtis. You're going to be coming to Alice Springs soon. Uh, just tell us what's going to be bringing you here to Alice Springs. Yeah, just coming there for the frame uh, workshop, and they'll have uh, people from all over the country uh, coming to Alice Springs, um, learning about filmmaking and and people who work uh, within remote media in their own communities coming in and making films and talking about how they can, you know, implement all these things that they're learning or that, or, you know, some of them that really already have it um, are going to be doing that back in their own community, whether it would be radio or films. And that sounds like a really good opportunity in terms of, you know, sharing those ideas and exchanging that knowledge. Is, is that something that you're personally looking forward to as well, to, and, and seeing all the different mob engaging with each other? Yeah, definitely. And the last time I, you know, seen most of the people uh, that are coming to the workshop um, was in Gettingen in 2011, um, when they had a, a remote media conference there, and they had people from all over the country um, and the Torres Strait come there to 
share about you know the stuff we'll be doing in uh, Alice Springs. So it's really exciting. Now, I understand there's going to be you know, like a range of workshops and things like that. You were mentioning earlier though about you know when you were getting first involved in filmmaking about you know sharing that story. Explain for us the importance of, of, you know, having that opportunity for Aboriginal and, and, and Torres Strait Islander people to be able to share those stories of their communities, of their life and things like that. You know, the most important thing is reclaiming that gaze because when we see the media, um, it doesn't really portray us how we would like to be portrayed or how we see ourselves. So I think it's, you know, reclaiming that gaze, you know, and making other people see through our lens and how we see the world and how we think and, you know, what's important to us and how um, all these little and big things affect us. Just in regards to the, the um, frame and the Festival of Remote uh, Australian Indigenous Moving Image, can you tell us some of those, do, do you have some of the uh, dates of when that's going to be happening and, and some of the different, uh, you know, things like the workshops and stuff that's going to be happening? Because I understand there's going to be um, awards happening as well, Yeah. Yeah, there'll be awards happening, I think, um, towards the tail end of the festival. But yeah, there'll be all different, like, uh, audio workshops, uh, filmmaking workshops throughout the week. And in terms of uh, just general public and stuff, are there certain things that the general public can go to for some of these as well, even just, you know, just watching and things like that? Yeah, definitely. There'll be, like, a screening at the end of the week, um, in the cinema where um, they'll be showing the films that are, you know, the finalist um, remote media films um, at the cinema there in Alice Springs. Just for you personally, what are you looking forward to most to, to be here in Alice Springs and, and, and a part of this festival? Just to see everybody that, you know, work in remote media um, all across the country, you know, in the one place and being able to share our stories and our experiences and also having fun at the end where, you know, we're having a celebration of, you know, uh, remote media content, you know, being shown in the cinema, but also, yeah, just a really big catch-up with everybody. Mm. I think it is that really great experience, like you were saying, in, in terms of that exchange of knowledge, but then, like you were saying as well, that importance of sharing that story. I think it's going to be a very exciting week. I understand that, uh, you know, over 40 content creators coming together all here in the Red Centre in Ubuntu, Alice Springs. On that note, uh, thank you so much, Curtis, for taking your time out to speak with us on Karma Radio. Yeah, no, thank you. Yes, that was uh, Machu filmmaker there, Curtis Taylor. He's also a facilitator for FRAME, the uh, ICTV's inaugural festival of remote Australian Indigenous moving image, which is taking place from this week, from the 13th to the 16th of May. I had the opportunity to speak with Curtis uh, late last week. Well, now we are heading into our next story. Well, Indigenous-owned contractor Eura, uh, which is in Western Australia, was recently awarded a $20 million contract from Rio Tinto, uh, to maintain a rail line. We we're going to be hearing from the CEO of Indijbandi Aboriginal Corporation, uh, Michael Woodley. Indijbandi is the majority owner of Eura. Here's that conversation that I had with Michael now. It's part of the Eubody um, structure in terms of making sure that we try and accomplish all of the things that our members you know, raise as uh, things to do or you know, concerns that we don't have in our community. So things like community development, 
things like making sure that we uh, also you know, you know, take care and protect our culture through language, land management, and stuff like that. And then we wanted to obviously have a, a present in the business and commercial sense as well. So we set up uh, this business down called Yura to obviously you know, capitalize opportunities within the, within the industry sector of iron ore and oil and gas and all this sort of stuff that operates in our you know, part of the world. And um, it was, again, to assist with employment and training. Um, and also, if we do it really, really well, we can make some good money out of it as well. So that's the, the short sort of version of, you know, that structure. And in particular, talking on those opportunities, obviously big news for the mob in the Pilbara with uh, Rio Tinto signing a contract with Eura. Um Can you detail for us, you know, what sort of entailed in it? Well, it's, it's been a six-year journey. This particular work is to do with the Rio Tinto's rail that situates across the Egyptian native tidal country. Um, and the work is to, is, is to continue with you know, servicing Rio Tinto's uh, rail and making sure that the maintenance of that, of that part of their business is being cared for and done in a safe and sufficient way. And that role is to obviously do the maintenance slash, you know, civil construction. And that's because the contract is. So then in terms of the employment opportunities for this, then that, that's an ongoing thing since it's for the maintenance of the rail? Yes, yes. And on the actual jobs, do, do we have a rough not sort of number of, of, of jobs that, you know, would be provided through this? Well, we've estimated it. Obviously, that'll provide an extra 20 more positions for local you know, people of the area. What we do as a business already is that we employ over 100 people already. And, and it's a mixture of, obviously, employees from, you know, indigenous, local indigenous, um, and, you know, non-indigenous. And the jobs range from full-time, part-time, and casual. This particular contract would probably have maybe around about 30 to 40 people full-time employed, I think. You know, we're looking at, you know, maybe 20 of, of those positions being local indigenous. That's the type of you know, support that will bring to our community. And, and talking about communities, you know, whenever we see sort of projects like this, you know, it's always, uh, you know, a good opportunity, I think, to, you know, have some of those, you know, those benefits flowing down to the communities. What, what, what benefits do you sort of see this flowing down to the communities, you know, um, from this opportunity? Well, first and foremost, obviously, you know, with employment, and training, and then if we do a really, really good job of it, then you know we, 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 we can be in a position where we're also making you know good profit from it. That'll obviously spin back into community projects. The euro structure, in terms of how it sits in relation to how it represents the Egyptian people, it's an organisation or a business that is owned into seventy five percent, or will be owned seventy five percent by the Egyptian nation. It's held in trust under the wealth trust portfolio. So. If we continue to be successful and make profits, then those profits will gradually flow back into the community on community projects and areas like, you know, uh, health, education, you know, you know, cultural programs, you know, elders' well-being and so on and so forth. And, and these sort of contracts are with, with people like Rio Tinto. Are there other organisations that, that you've sort of worked with over the years? And is this something that, uh, you know, you're is looking to continue to doing, working with, you know, uh, Rio Tinto and there's sort of others in that space? No, of course. I mean, look, we, 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 look obviously the business we're going to be diverse in terms of, you know, the work that we, you know, that we get and who we continue to work for. 
Rio is obviously one of our main clients because we have an indigenous land use agreement with them. But we also work closely with the city of Prague as well, who's been you know, very supportive as well in giving us some work. We're looking to also capitalize in some other industry areas as well within the area and doing some work for government. Um, also, we did some work obviously on our own community project and you know, realize you know, the refurbishment of the big hotel or the old big hotel through our business arm, which has a you know, building and maintenance section. Um, and all that sort of stuff. So, look, I mean, you know, uh, obviously the business, you know, to you know, be competitive and, and to capture the ongoing market within the, you know, within the area, we, we, you know, we have to be think diverse and, 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 and also open to how we continue to, you know, grow the business. Do you know when uh, sort of commencement will, will happen with the maintenance? Or do you have any... Does this work? Yes. Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's actually started some months ago, right? Okay. So the announcement is is, is, is actually behind um, what has already sort of taken place. So, yeah. Yeah, look, I just ended by saying I think, look, in numbers it's obviously possible if, you know, Rio Tinto didn't believe and obviously the partnership and obviously the, you know, your structure and what we've been able to capture and deliver uh, in the six years. Thanks again, Michael, for, for speaking with us on Comrade today. No, no, again, but thanks for the opportunity. Yes, that was the CEO of the Indijibandi Aboriginal Corporation there, Michael Woodley, ending that story. Well, on to our final story now. As we know, there are a high number of uh, First Nations peoples who are running for seats in the, uh, you know, potentially in the House of Reps and in the Senate in this year's elections on uh, Saturday, May 18th, the federal elections. the question, though, of whether or not this will impact the aims of uh, First Nations peoples and will actually, you know, then lead on to change in policy is a question that was uh, looked at in a report from the wise uh, Stephen uh, Riggle. A record number of Indigenous people are standing for election coming up on May 18. At least 22 people are running for lower house and Senate seats as independents and with the backing of major and minor parties. But just like any politician from a social minority group, First Nations members can face difficulties reconciling their role as party members with their role as perceived figureheads for First Nations people more generally. Senior lecturer in Indigenous Studies at the University of New South Wales, Dr Diana Perch, says the dominance of political parties is part of the problem. And the problem really is in our system to to get elected to Parliament, it's it's really important to be supported by a party. It's very difficult to get elected without the support of a party. Um, but once you've been elected, you're expected to toe the party line. So there have been some real um, challenges for our First Nations members of Parliament. So Ken Wyatt, um, who's, a, who's a Liberal member for Haslark, a seat in Western Australia, he had some issues where he threatened to cross the, cross the floor of Parliament when the Liberal Party was talking about the racial vilification laws and the Section 18C debate and whether or not they would soften the, the legislation. And he made it very clear that he couldn't accept that and that he would have to cross the floor. It's just an example of how difficult it is for, for members of Parliament to go against the party line. So it's even more challenging, perhaps, for First Nations MPs who are trying to represent the interests of their own communities and of First Nations more broadly across the continent and yet are expected to follow party lines that are not necessarily in the interests of First Nations. 
First Nations politicians can encounter other problems. Dr Perch says being seen as a representative for First Nations people in general can lead to the development of high expectations. We have such high expectations of people who are elected who clearly represent a particular minority. Certainly First Nations members of parliament are recognised as being representative of First Nations broadly, but that's difficult in itself. First Nations are extremely diverse politically, culturally across Australia. They're not all the same. They don't all have the same ideological position, the same political understanding of problems. So there are high expectations just because it can be very confusing. Despite this, First Nations politicians from the Labor Party, Liberal Party and Jackie Lambie found ways to work together in the last parliament. So with those five members of parliament, they made a very um, deliberate effort to present themselves as First Nations, as as a collective that kind of stood outside the parties. And we know that they certainly worked behind the scenes to to work together on issues. And one of the issues that they worked particularly on was the issue around constitutional recognition and what to do about the constitutional recognition of, of First Peoples in Australia particularly in the aftermath of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. So there was some really interesting work going on there. With more First Nations people in Parliament, Dr Perch hopes Indigenous people will get more engaged in the political process. She says Indigenous people may see more of a point in participating if their views are being taken up by First Nations representatives. We know that in 2014, for example, it was estimated that 42% of First Nations people are not even enrolled to vote. And we, we know from turnout figures in in Indigenous communities that, that turnout isn't particularly strong either. So there are big issues around engagement with the the political process and engagement with the political parties and the, the, the level that they appeal to Indigenous voters. So th- th- there are bigger problems there. And certainly the more we see First Nations members of Parliament representing First Nations voices and priorities and issues, the the more likely it is that voters might engage with what's actually going on inside Parliament House in Canberra and might actually feel that, they, that they're being represented and that, they, that there's a point to engaging, there's a point to voting. So what should parties do to make First Nations people take notice of them and, more importantly, vote for them? Well, I think that any major party who wants to to engage seriously with First Nations people in Australia, the first thing that they need to do is really to take the Uluru Statements on the heart seriously and to to really think seriously about what voice treaty truth means and how that can be put into place and how it can be seriously acted on. Political parties who who want to win government also really need to, to look again at closing the gap and what's required to close the gap. More broadly, it's really important for a party that wants to win over First Nations people to, to, to work much more deliberately with First Nations communities and, and First Nations uh, regions and to, to develop solutions that come from those regions and those communities rather than just impose solutions from Canberra. And ultimately, I think any party that wants to win the votes of, of First Peoples in Australia really needs to to explicitly recognise the the strength and the vitality of First Nations. And it's not just about recognising the special status of First Nations as, as being the people who were here first, but it's also about recognising how much 
we have to learn from Indigenous knowledge, from Indigenous culture and law and ways of doing things and how much that really should be considered in policy development for, for all of Australia. Senior lecturer in Indigenous Studies at the University of New South Wales, Dr Diana Perch, ending that story. Yes, that was the wise Stephen uh, Rigor ending that report there. And that concludes uh, Strong Voices for this morning. We'll be uh, back at the same time tomorrow from 11 till 12. Strong Voices. Richard Richard.